This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Joel Dudley spent the better part of his career using big data and AI to find better solutions in how we treat diseases. To Joel, who's currently the chief scientific officer at the tech health startup Tempest, getting medical treatment today is kind of like going to the mechanic. When we get sick, or in this particular analogy, when we have a faulty part, we're often given cures for what's considered to be a singular problem. But to Joel, illnesses are too intertwined with other factors in our body to be seen as one-off issues. What he's been researching is how we can treat the body not only as a whole system, but how that treatment can be personalized to each individual at scale. In our conversation, Joel explains how he's tackling such a lofty goal by thinking outside the medical status quo. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So you are currently the chief scientific officer at Tempest, which is a tech startup focused on advancing precision medicine. And you spent many years at Mount Sinai holding titles such as associate professor of genetics and genomic sciences and director Mm -hmm. of the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare, which is... Wow, fit that on a business card. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. In sort of like digging digging in into your past a little bit, I mean, your early career, you you started off in software development, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. So can you sort of chart your journey from there to where you are now? Yeah, no, I was always kind of a, into computers and, and I'm 44 years old now. So that means when you're in, I was into computers young, which means I had a, a machine called an Atari 800 XL, which actually the hard drive was actually an audio tape. It was like a tape, literally a tape drive that oh, stored yeah. stuff on audio tape. <laughs> I never and, owned uh, one, but I know like the history you know of Atari. Like I love about. the history of games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'd program basic on that, et cetera. But I always also loved biology. And I had a, uh, I think I even have like a sixth grade paper, one of those, what do you want to be when you grow up things? And I'm like one of the, it's one of the rare things where I actually knew I wrote, I wanted to be a geneticist. Oh, are you serious? Some, for, yeah, yeah, for some strange reason. I don't know why, you know, I don't barely remember what I was even thinking about. It was probably mostly like He-Man and, you know, G.I. Joe back then, but somehow I thought I would be a geneticist. So I'd always been t- teaching myself computers, but I, I went to undergrad for molecular biology, microbiology, because I you know, really loved biology. And back then they weren't seen as things that could be brought together. You know, they were seen as separate mm-hmm. things. So I sort of kept computers as the hobby graduated with a molecular biology degree, but turns out that pushing pipettes just doesn't pay super well compared to the software engineering. So, right. so I went into a software engineering job and just by living at the right place at the right time, having the right set of uh, hobbies, then bioinformatics becomes sort of the thing. When I realized, wow, I can put computer science and biology together. And it turns out that there, there weren't a huge number of people that had that skill set at the time. And there still aren't, frankly, a lot of people that have deep expertise in both. And I was just, you know, right place, right time, right hobbies and background to diffuse those two worlds. But career-wise, started out in, in software engineering, just simply for economics. But although it turned out to be, you know, super useful to, to learn professional software engineering, as I'm now in a, a tech startup that's trying to scale precision right. medicine massively to, you know, to the world, that you have having that background is super useful. Yeah. And so for those who don't know or are unfamiliar, I mean, what exactly is precision medicine? Like if you're at a cocktail party, how do you describe to someone what, what you do yeah. exactly? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different interpretations of precision medicine. I think the easiest way to describe precision medicine, again, which has many different sort of variations of definitions, depending on who you talk to is 
personalized medicine sort of at the population level is one way, useful way to think about it, right? So I think the almost the ultimate goal of precision medicine is this sort of N of one, you know, how do we treat an individual based on their unique biology, their unique environment, right? With, with things that we think are really gonna work and be effective. But I think along the way to that N of one, you know, dream, which I think is the ultimate goal of precision medicine is how do we practice that sort of personalized medicine at the population level, mm -hmm. which would be a massive, you know, improvement in many areas of medicine where the one size fits all approach still applies broadly across many areas of medicine. And fortunately in cancer, precision medicine is moving uh, rapidly, but other really important areas like uh, psychiatric disease or autoimmune disease, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And in that respect, I mean, if you can use sort of the research in cancer as an example, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what exactly does that personalized approach to treatment and healthcare look like? Because I think mm -hmm. one thing in sort of digging, you know, into the work that you've been doing, I know that you're very keen on kind of breaking down the silos in diseases yes. and like stop thinking, yeah. trying to get people to think outside of just like, this is this department, this is this yeah. department, this is it. So how, I guess like, you know, it's not like you said earlier, that cancer is something that is kind of the farthest along, I suppose, in, in what yeah. you're doing and what you're researching and working on. But yeah, so I'd love to just an example wow. of what that looks like. Yeah, so that sort of has been a, a mission of mine is to really, I guess I'm a systems guy and a systems thinker. And, you know, how do we fix or treat the body as a system? Because it kind of what we do in medicine now is sort of like, it's like the mechanic shop, right? Your car goes into the mechanic and it's kind of making a knock and maybe you think it's this or the alternator and right. you, you turn some knobs and then it stops making the knocking sound and you kind of go out of the garage or whatever. But really the humans are a system and they're, they're a complex adaptive system. So individual human is a system with many interacting parts where, you know, you, you, you influencing one system will, part, will influence another system in ways we don't totally understand. But you know, then there's a, a population as a system of individuals operating in an environment, right? And then diseases in, in many ways are a system as well, right? So, you know, the, the classification of disease is called the nosology, you know, mm -hmm. so how do we think about diseases being classified? But our understanding, even till today, of that taxonomy of human disease is dominated by symptoms and anatomy, you know, view of, of human disease. You know, this kind of does something to the heart. It's a heart disease, this type of doctor treats those diseases, but what, what we've learned through the molecular biology revolution led by genetics, but also other modalities is that at the molecular level, that symptom is an, an anatomy view of disease really breaks down in, in many ways. And uh, uh, what's at the root of a lot of it in my you know, opinion is the immune system, right? So you have certainly your anatomy, we have these static components, right? Your liver doesn't move around the body, although it can it can signal other parts of the body. Obviously organs can signal each other through the endocrine system and the nervous system. But I think one of the final frontiers of human health is really understanding the immune system as a system. And we always think of the immune system as sort of a, a defender, you know, of our, of our body, like the, it goes and kills things, you know, but it's, it's really a master signaling system, right? Mm -hmm. It really carries messages across your, your body and it tells other cells to do things. So I think Thinking about the immune system as this master multi-scale signaling system that's constantly almost like a, a, a network, right? Like a network in, in your office, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Passing messages across the body. So we have the nervous system that does that. But I think what's underappreciated is our immune system is very much like the nervous system and that it's, it carries signals across the, the body in, in complex ways. So you know, we, we really are still in the early stages of uh, 
sort of reframing human disease as this, you know, the, the, I say every disease is a system, is a system, systemic disease, you know, mm. like we think of the brain as brain diseases. And, uh, you know, we can't, we shouldn't think of depression as a CNS disorder. We should think mm. of it as a systemic disorder. For example, we know inflammation in the body can contribute to treatment resistant depression, for example. And that's yes. a, you know, so. Yeah, right. I could I could go on for this with this forever, but uh, that, hopefully no, I answered the question. <laughs> no, absolutely, and I think it's to me that's why it's so your particular trajectory is so fascinating because I mean you're not a medical doctor, but your work lands no. squarely in the medical profession. And so, what insight do you think you bring to the field as an outsider of sorts? Like, how are you looking at problem solving in a way that a medical doctor might not? Yeah, I have a great anecdote about that. So I was in a really unique program at Stanford that even though we were in this sort of biomedical informatics, very heavily quantitative and computer science driven program, the program was actually started by a bunch of physicians in the 80s around the time of sort of the PC revolution who were thinking, gosh, you know, computers must be are going to be useful in medicine someday. Let's start a program. And we were, I was very fortunate that this was almost a vestigial program rather than a more modern program. Like there's a lot of bioinformatics programs now, but why that's important is I got to take a lot of medical school classes, which helped, but I have an anecdote I'd like to share was when I have a friend who was a physician in that program, who then was going back to get his degree in biomedical informatics. So he was taking a lot of the computer science and the machine learning and the statistics. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment where we passed in the hall and I was going to my, uh, uh, one of my med school classes and I said, ah, all this memorization. And he, and he looks at me and he goes, ah, oh, all this critical thinking. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, so obviously, you know, being very facetious and I know MDs do critical thinking, but uh, the, that's the important point there is that there's sort of a very fundamental difference in how we see the world in, in that it is quantitative sort of probabilistic mindset in, in terms of looking at, at the human body is different than how physicians are, you know, sort of trained. I always, you know, this is, I'm sure the MDs here, this get really mad, but you know, a lot of them, they're more like mechanics, right. In a way. Right. So, and, and, and obviously there's great, you know, I should say there's great clinician scientists and, and there's a lot of MDs that do science, but it's more about the, the training. So I think the, the point is we, we were in a really unique program where we got a good foundation in medicine, but then it was mixed with this, you know, quantitative, heavily quantitative, training. And, and I think we just need more of that you know, around yeah. the world. And that's the thing. So, I mean, you're actually named one of Fast Company's most creative people in 2014. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's some, there may be some dissonance for some people who think, who hear what you do, hear about what you do, and then they have, and it doesn't really correlate yeah. with like what they think of creativity, but what all the yeah. things that you're talking about, like, you know, problem solving and looking at things mm-hmm. in a new way, that is creativity. So for you, I mean, what exactly how have you come to define creativity in your line of work, yeah. So when I when I give a my, my typical scientific talk, I I sort of talk about these data driven approaches, how we're using data to sort of redefine disease, and and I I had another paper where we um, put huge amounts of data together and we um, identified that a viral contribution to Alzheimer's uh, that was totally unexpected, and uh, I had a very very funny quote about it in New York Times, which was. Um, I went looking for drugs and all I found were these stupid viruses. And I, I love that quote, because, <laughs> but the point of the point of that quote was the last, the last thing we were looking for were viruses, but mm-hmm. by taking this very holistic data driven approach and looking at the disease and sort of an agnostic 
way across many different sort of genetic proteomics, imaging, et cetera, we, we found a new area you know, uh, of, of the disease. And I, I also showed Donald Rumsfeld in my scientific talks, which always throws people off, but you know, he had this great <laughs> quote, which a lot of people, you know, there's the, the he got made fun of for, but I think it's actually an awesome quote in terms of, of, of science uh, and scientific discovery is the known, the known knowns and the known unknowns. And right. he said, then there's unknown unknowns. And I think one thing we really struggle with in science is the unknown unknowns. There's also an old comic I show where there's a gentleman looking under the, a streetlight, you know, for a, a quarter and a cop walks by and he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm looking, I'm looking for my quarter and, and that I, the coin that I dropped. And, and the police officer says, well, did you drop it near here? And he goes, no, I dropped it, you know, two blocks down, down the street. He says, why are you looking here? He says, that's where the light's shining. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so, that's good. Yeah. It, it's at night, right? So, so science is all, it has a huge, so that streetlight effect, you know, if you will, Perfect. is a huge, huge problem in biomedical research, in my opinion, you see this effect in Alzheimer's disease with the beta, this, you know, this amyloid or hypothesis that there's this beta amyloid plaques they build up in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. And mm -hmm. we have just been hammering on that hypothesis and developing drugs against that hypothesis for decades. And it's failed almost every time, mm. but we keep kind of running our head into that wall, but really that's probably a downstream phenomenon of some upstream complex thing we don't understand, but kind of looking where the light was shining right. mostly. But I think from a, a creativity standpoint, then with the unknown unknowns, it's sort of imagining where you look next in the dark, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and that takes a huge amount, in my opinion, takes a huge amount of creativity because you're staring into the, to the dark and you're saying, you know, where, where am I going to go? I'm standing in this dark room and like, where's the, which part am I going to walk into next? This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So how does that tie into the work that you're doing with Tempest? Because I know that, that that company is, it's still new. I think it, you started there maybe a year ago. And yeah, the company is only a couple of years old. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. So, so how are you sort of looking at all these things in the position that you're in now at Tempest? One of the ways I argue that we could really deal with the, the unknown unknowns is, so we have these very powerful new tools like, you know, next generation sequencing, whole genome sequencing, the companies like Illumina develop these machines that allow us to basically measure the whole genome or the whole transcriptome in a cell, the transcriptome being the expressed, you know, genes that are expressed off the DNA. And we have other types of machines now that let us measure the whole state of a system, if that makes sense, right? So mm -hmm. let's say we'd want to discover like what gene is associated with multiple sclerosis. Before next generation sequencing, you'd have to say, I need a good guess at least about which gene is important because I have to a priori determine which genes I'm gonna measure mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a study. Now with next generation sequencing, we can just measure every darn gene there is and, and do statistical associations. We a priori, we don't need to know what we're looking for. So I would say we can basically measure the whole state of the system, the DNA. Of course, there's multiple systems in a cell, but now we have all these tools like whole genome, whole transcriptome. We have proteomics where we measure all the proteins, metabolomics, we measure all the metabolites. It's almost like in a way by analogy, it's not perfect, but it's like an atom smasher, right? <laughs> where we can just like, you can basically like perturb biology now, now with, you know, the great Nobel prizes that were just awarded recently with Jennifer Doudna and, and others on CRISPR, which was a, a totally deserved Nobel oh, prize yeah. for sure. Just an amazing discovery. Not only can we reread 
biology with next-generation sequencing. We can now write biology with CRISPR. But with CRISPR, you can perturb your the, the a system, and then now with the whole genome sequencing, you can basically read out the entire state of the system. So I say it's like an atom smasher because you can just like perturb biology and just like read everything that comes out, you know, like an <laughs> atom smasher. But we couldn't do that before. So now we have all these tools to measure the whole state of a patient, a cell, or whatever, and sort of take a very data-driven approach rather than being biased by any sort of a priori hypothesis about what we think is important. And that helps us sort of uncover these unknown unknowns. And, and tying it back to Tempest, the reason I left my very cushy tenure job in the ivory tower, <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, I wish I had early tenure and all that good stuff and life was good, but Tempest was the only precision medicine company that I've seen still to this day that was committed to this, let's let's call it a very multi-scale approach to precision medicine, meaning for every disease that we're going to study, we're going to build this machine that can operate at massive scale that is committed to collecting all these complex layers of information on a disease. In cancer, the only thing that's reimbursed by insurance right now is DNA sequencing, but mm -hmm. DNA is a very static you know, right. measure, right? But Tempest generates full transcriptome and imaging and all these other things. So it's every time Tempest gets a sample, a patient sample, we try to generate as much data as possible you know, without completely losing our, our shirt. So right. <laughs> but, but the, with the goal of the goal of really investing in this opportunity to learn the unknown unknown about disease. So that was super compelling to me. I'd never seen a company committed to that vision. And it's it's a big deal because it's a massive investment in the future versus what gets reimbursed today. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's so I find it interesting because it sounds like, in in some capacities, we when 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 we talk about big data in really any industry, it's usually the thought of the more the better. You know, the more you know. Yeah. And you know. Oh yeah. And it, that I, I completely understand that. But at the on the flip side, a part of me always wonders: like, is there such a thing as too much data? Like, is there such a thing as like, you know, like when it comes to collecting all yeah. this, like it's how, I guess like maybe, maybe the better way to phrase the question is, I mean, like, how do you go about kind of parsing through, like, how do you make sense of all of these, all of these mm -hmm. data points that you're collecting, all these layers of data, as you mentioned earlier, that you're collecting, like, how do you make sense of all that? And is there such a thing? as Yeah. So that, data? that's a good question. We get that question all the time. My, my knee jerk reaction is, is always, there's never too much data yeah, from, from my perspective <laughs> and when you know, biological collaborators will ask me sometimes you know how, how much data do you want and the answer is always all of it you know like you can't give me enough data but you know there's a really important caveats there is is one is you have to be very sophisticated in how you use that data so you don't get um, led down different uh, rabbit holes that just lead you into all kinds of nonsense a specific example is you know we published a paper on radiology data sets, applying deep learning you know, methods to radiology data sets. And actually one of the things that the, that the deep learning algorithm was picking up on, which wasn't annotated in the data set was the, was the manufacturer of the mm -hmm. machine, right? So let's imagine, you know, we compare two cohorts of patients and, and one cohort was run on a Siemens machine and one's run on a GE machine, but that's not labeled in the data. Mm. We might have found, we might believe we found a biological signal, but in fact, it's the the nuance of how the manufacturer <laughs> captures that image. For example, so you, you have to be a very sophisticated user of these approaches. They're very powerful, and the opportunities to be led astray, I think, are increasing or, or be led by those biases are increasing because we these powerful tools like deep learning tools 
like TensorFlow, which Google releases basically for free to the world, which is amazing because it's unlocking opportunities for all kinds of new businesses. But now, you know, someone with someone can watch a YouTube tutorial, you know, for for ten minutes and be up and running with TensorFlow, and and doing things very powerful computation on, on huge data sets, but without a foundation of, you know, statistics or data science that really, and when you get that training, you learn to be highly skeptical right? <laughs> of, of any, you know, there, there's something called an AUC, an area under the curve that tells you in some cases how good your, your model is. And, and whenever I was training grad students and they'd show me they had a perfect you know, AUC, that's not a time for celebration. That's a time for panic because no model predicts <laughs> things perfectly. You know, they screwed up somewhere. So, right. Um, yeah. So, so the, the dissemination of these very powerful data science tools, which I think is great and overall creates all these opportunities to be led astray by, by big data. Yeah. And kind of to that point, and I wonder if this is applicable to your line of work, but, you know, also in the conversation of, gathering all this data, it, you know, you mentioned, you know, kind of biases as it pertains to the machines, but mm-hmm. when it comes to like racial and gender, mm-hmm. biases, they, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. So I think that's something I always find kind of interesting as it pertains to medicine, because there is a history of, of, I think when you collect, you have, it's so important when you collect the data for it to be as to think about all these things because you can get sort of like a false baseline of information and just kind of like yeah. run with it and think like, this is, you know, we're charging forward and this is the future, but you're also kind of leaving some people behind. So when it comes totally. to these biases as it pertains to gender, race, you know, every, mm-hmm. all of it, how does that factor into your thinking? Like when it comes to, uh, when it comes to your work at Tempest, like I would love to hear mm-hmm. a little bit about, um, about, yeah, about that, like how that, all that factors into what you do. Yeah, super important, obviously in the world of genetic research and uh, the way we discover how, you know, if you read in the paper that a gene was associated with some disease, that's usually done in the modern context or at least for the last decade in what's called a genome-wide association study where they sort of correlate genetic factors with disease factors. And 90, I don't know, 8% of those studies have been run in Caucasians, something like that. And we, we know there are you know, huge differences in terms of how you, so given those things that are learned at a population level, what we, what we often try to do is when we learn those things at a population level, then the, the, again, the goal of precision medicine is to try to apply them at the individual level, right? So there's probably a lot of things that just don't, won't translate. And also genes and environment are not independent of one another, right? So, Mm -hmm. so how you decouple not only population and ancestry and all these other things, but then, um, you know, genes operate in the context of an environment. So genes operating in one environment will not be, will not, may not act the same in other environments, right? So it's not even important to, to get the, you know, say population or ancestry components of genetics. Um, it's also important to understand environment as well. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of the data sets that people are building up. I think one of the things I'm very proud of at Tempest is I think we've got in the last couple of years have probably... I, I couldn't I couldn't give you a number off the off the cuff, but the amount of diversity in terms of diversity of individuals we've measured cancer data from and Tempest has, you know, materially contributed to the world's uh, you know, cancer data, uh, the diversity of the world's cancer data without a doubt. Mm. And we're actually and we're publishing a, a lot on this as well. We have some papers and abstracts coming out about the significant differences in, in genetic factors and their clinical interpretation across racial groups, for example. 
but it, it fundamentally goes down too back to, to data science on the gender issue in particular. A lot of NIH studies were done without good gender balance. And now there's a new rule for all NIH funding that you actually have to, before you even receive funding, you actually have to submit a part of your grant that, that shows the, the gender balance component oh. and to make sure that, because oh. uh, hormones are extremely powerful <laughs> on biology. They are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, they, 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 there's something in, in the body called a nuclear hormone receptor and, and really hormones are able to influence like your DNA directly almost. Yeah. It's, they're very powerful. Um, and, and it's, you know, women and, and other genders are completely underrepresented in, yeah. in, in, in research. So I, I think Tempest and other companies were, we're starting to build to achieve a scale at which we can, um, sort of aggregate and collect this data. My hope is that we fill those gaps rapidly. Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, cause we've been talking a bit about, you know, the, in what you do in the context of, you know, cancer, something that has been studied for, you know, mm-hmm. for decades, but when it comes to something like COVID-19, something that, you know, yeah. does have, you know, it, it, it does have roots in, you know, other viruses, but it is something that people have not really, this is novel, you know, it's a novel coronavirus. So mm-hmm. how, how have you been wrapping your mind around you and your team at Tempest? How have you been, mm-hmm. been wrapping your mind around COVID-19 and where, and how you can kind of step in and, you know, add to figuring this thing out? Cause we're, yeah, we're not done with it anytime soon. <laughs> so, no, no, we're, yeah, we're running, obviously we're, we're doing COVID testing and then we're, we're amassing a unique understanding of, of COVID testing that way. But I think the, the real opportunity here, I think the one thing that COVID has really revealed, I guess it gets back to what we talked about earlier is our very poor understanding of how the body is connected, you know, by the immune system. So for example, mm-hmm. We've seen the studies on, and the studies are forthcoming and it's hard to draw a lot of conclusions, but we know that COVID seems to be able to damage the heart and the vascular system. We know that obesity is a major risk factor and it actually is tied to biology of, of uh, adipocytes, which are the fat cells, if you will, mm-hmm. that and, and the interaction with the immune system. You can actually take, there's this molecule called IL, interleukin-6, IL-6, and I actually have a, a, a figure that shows that you can just take IL-6, which is critical in COVID, and there's even IL-6 drugs. So one, IL-6 is a biomarker of how you're going to respond to, to COVID. Mm-hmm. And there's also drugs you know, targeting IL-6 that have been evaluated for COVID. But IL-6 is a really important target in cancer. And IL-6 is a really important molecule in autoimmune disease. And IL-6 is a really important molecule in, in neuropsychiatric disease. There's, there's data that shows that IL-6... So forget the rest of the complexity of the immune system. You could just pick this, this molecule that we think we understand very well called interleukin-6 and put it at the center. And you can draw very strict connections to all these different diseases, but we don't really understand, you know, the nature of those connections. And, and, uh, and if we, if we did, um, we could bet, for example, we have opportunities now because Tempest is in cancer, Tempest is in neuropsychiatry, Tempest is in cardiology. In fact, you know, one of the things we're going to do is actually follow up on, the, on connecting those dots, you know, now that we've got these data sets, how do we how do we connect the dots between COVID and cardiovascular risk? How do we connect the dots between COVID and and, and neuropsychiatric risk, for example, if possible? So I think that's an awesome opportunity we have. Well, actually, I think that's all I have for you, Joel. This okay. has been such a fantastic conversation. I feel like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's I, I geek out over stuff like this. I love it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Finey.